You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. This is Prashant Parmas, we're in from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good, how are you doing? Doing well. I hope uh, I hope it's gotten a little bit warmer in Washington, D.C. after uh, after all the snow that had you guys uh, all snowed in. Surprisingly, we didn't get much here in New York City. It was just uh, it was just a bunch of rain that turned into ice. So that's always delightful. Um, <laughs> but uh, but speaking of ice, um, and I pardon. I hope listeners will pardon me for the terrible segue here. Um, America's alliances in Asia are in a little bit of trouble. Specifically on this episode, we'll talk a bit about simultaneous doldrums in the alliances with both the Philippines and South Korea, um, which is great because I spent a lot of time watching Korea and Prashant spends a lot of time uh, focusing on the Philippines and Southeast Asia. Uh, but Prashant, I thought we'd start by talking about the Philippines, where um, recently, I guess in December, late December, um, Delphine Lorenzana, the Philippines Defense Secretary, uh, called for a review of the 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty with the United States. And as you and I both know, the issues surrounding that treaty um, have been contentious even before the Trump administration really came onto the stage with its broader skepticism about about alliances. Specifically, one of the issues is under what circumstances does the treaty actually apply? And this has been really a question in the context of the South China Sea disputes. Um, so I guess the question that I have for you to kind of kick this all off today is just how serious um, is this call by a by the defense secretary, who, by the way, is not, in my understanding, nearly as uh, concerned about American presence in the Philippines as President Rodrigo Duterte. Um, but I'm wondering if you could provide a bit of context here and uh, and just kind of outline how serious you really think this is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty serious. Um, you're right to note um, at the outset that this is something that's you know not entirely new, right? Whether we look at any of the U.S. alliances um, that exist in, in, in the Asia-Pacific, I think you can find periods of time at which there's been contention about, you know, some element of burden sharing or U.S. force presence and so on and so forth. And I think the big question has been, you know, is this under the Trump administration in particular and, and with the rise of President Duterte in the case of the Philippines, but also a number of these alliances, right? Are we seeing a, another inflection point um, at this at this stage with respect to U.S. alliances in the region? Um, and I think this wave of discontent um, coming from the Philippines about, you know, the need to review the existing alliance agreement with the United States, it comes at a very interesting time. It, it comes at a time when um, there are broader uncertainties about the Trump administration's Asia and Southeast Asia engagement. It comes at a time when the Philippines has been pursuing unprecedented levels of engagement uh, with the Chinese, including on the defense side. Um, and the Chinese have been pushing actually for a lot more uh, and the Philippines has has resisted thus far on on a number of those accounts. And it, you know, the fact that this is being voiced by Delphine Lorenzana, uh, the defense secretary, as you noted, um, is particularly significant because Lorenzana has been a big advocate of the U.S.-Philippine alliance historically, and he actually served in Washington as the defense attaché. So he knows the alliance relationship very well. He knows the history. So the fact that he's bringing this up is pretty serious. I mean, in terms of the the prospects for any kind of breakdown in the alliance, I, I think it's it's still too soon to see whether this will actually happen. The controversy so far, unlike South Korea, which we'll get to, with the Philippines, it's sort of been the Philippines kind of testing what the extent to which the U.S. alliance commitment is with respect to where it's at, rather than 
a explicit renegotiation period and process about burden sharing, which is more contentious. And I think the, the other secondary issue I'd note uh, in comparison with South Korea is that, I mean, it, it's a pretty blunt reality. It, it, it's pretty depressing uh, for, for defense policymakers in the Philippines, but it is a reality that the U.S.-Philippine alliance doesn't enjoy anywhere near of a status as the U.S.-Japan alliance or the U.S.-South Korea alliance, right? Um, this is something which you go back looking historically, multiple administrations have questioned about, you know, whether the United States can really rely on the Philippines and whether if they push too far on alliance commitments, they can trust the Philippines to deal on issues, particularly on the South China Sea, where I think the U.S. has held off on defining its commitments because it's it's sort of a little bit anxious about whether the Philippines' uh, adventurism in the South China Sea and emboldenment uh, could lead to the United States actually hopping into places where it doesn't want to go. Um, but that has produced, I guess, uh, an additional reaction from the Philippines, which is, well, if, if you guys aren't sure about how important we are, you know, what is the nature of this agreement that we have? It, you know, it gives us a huge amount of exposure uh, as a right. U.S. ally. So that's the kind of the broad dynamic that's at work there. Yeah. I mean, you know, the point of status in the hierarchy of U.S. alliances, uh, I think, is a really good one. Uh, yeah. You know, Thailand and the Philippines are nowhere near mm -hmm. South Korea and Japan when it comes to overall attention received in Washington, D.C. And certainly, you know, if you read um, if you take a look at the U.S. media, I mean, um, I'll talk about it maybe a bit on the South Korean context, but these issues are hardly being talked about. Um, on the you know in the headlines, I mean Trump's comments on NATO are one thing. The INF treaty has received a fair bit of attention, on the other end. But but these alliance issues in Asia are really receiving fairly little attention, if at all. Um, you know some Philippines analysts I've talked to you know point to the um, Obama trip to Japan in 2014, which was when he clarified for the first time that the disputed Senkaku Islands, which were under Japanese administration, would effectively fall under the ambit of the Mutual Defense Treaty, which was a really welcome signal in Japan. Um, arguably, it strengthened deterrence against China if China was considering taking action. This was right after the declaration in 2013 of the Air Defense Identification Zone. And similarly, in the Philippines, as you, as you just noted, uh, the entire alliance conversation is now effectively circling around the South China Sea, which is the most credible space where China might attempt to seize Philippines territory, as it did in 2012 over Scarborough Shoal, right? So I think many Filipinos just want a similar kind of guarantee over features like Second Thomas Shoal and other Philippines possessions, especially, you know, after the 2016 ruling at the at the Hague Tribunal, which the U.S. has taken the position that it's binding, um, but yet, you know, they're not getting that. So it's, it's understandable to me where a lot of this is coming from. Um, but let me ask you now, I mean, so you've been kind of, you know, watching how the Trump administration has maneuvered in Southeast Asia, um, how do you think the Trump administration is really going to deal with this alliance issue? I mean, Trump, as far as we know, has not said anything about the Philippines since Lorenzano's um, call to review the treaty. But if you had to kind of make a guess on how the U.S. is going to play this, um, how would you think uh, we're going to see Washington move here? It's tough to say. I mean, at this stage, you know, in, in Washington here, I mean, it, there was a, an understanding that irrespective of what Trump's own personal views were that at least with Secretary Mattis and some of the presence of senior level officials of the Defense Department and elsewhere, that there was a general understanding that there needed to be some moves taken uh, with respect to the U.S.-Philippine alliance and some of the other alliances that the United States has, right? So, for example, um, historical issues that the Duterte administration had brought up um, that the U.S. Embassy in the Philippines and others had recognized, like the return of 
the Balangiga Bells, for example, from mm-hmm. the U.S. to the Philippines. That was something that was recognized and that Secretary Mattis made a big effort to right a, a certain wrong that President Duterte had highlighted before in a recognition that at least addressing these historical issues would help the United States overcome some friction points with the Philippines and reinforce the fact that the United States actually got some of the concerns that were being uh, held under the Duterte administration. But now with some of these senior level administration officials uh, leaving, including Secretary Mattis, um, and you know these other distractions um, and other foreign policy issues that the United States has to deal with, right? And broader uncertainties about Asia, you've got a new democratic house um, and changes and power alignments on that front. There's a fear, I think, that um, these distractions and other foreign policy priorities will crowd out the the already, uh, you know, minor importance that the Philippines and Southeast Asia more generally has in U.S. foreign policy. That's not a new concern, I think, but it's one that um, has surfaced to a greater degree under the Trump administration, given the fact that we have a president who, you know, I, I don't think has very strong personal views about um the the Philippines in general, even though he has very strong feelings and views about alliances, right? And this right. notion that the United States is being taken for a ride and that it's doing too much and receiving too little, um, you know, that's something that I think we see more uh, of the tendencies come up with South Korea because, you know, it's more of a high profile event and it's tied to the North Korea priority that the Trump administration has rather than the Philippines. That's right. Um, well, maybe that's a good time to switch around to South Korea. Yeah, so switching on to South Korea, I mean, how do you see uh, the U.S.-ROK alliance progressing thus far and some of the uncertainties that we've seen with respect to negotiation and, and renegotiation so far? Well, so the U.S. alliance with South Korea is in a really dangerous place right now. And some of it is related to the fact that we are heading into this second summit with Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. I think the mm-hmm. North Korea dynamic does play into it quite quite significantly. Uh, First of all, Trump is a lot more aware of the alliance with South Korea than he is about the Philippines. Uh, He's met with President Moon several times. He's aware of the burden-sharing discussions, which makes it a much more difficult issue for the two sides to broach. Um, So it just so happened that the five-year special measures agreement, which is the burden-sharing agreement between the two sides that determines how much South Korea will pay for um, the U.S. military presence in South Korea, was coming due at the end of 2018. So December 31st marked the expiration of that agreement, and the two sides couldn't agree on an extension, uh, primarily because the White House interjected after USFK had already reached an agreement with the South Korean side and determined that South Korea wasn't paying sufficiently enough. And it just so happens that this was around the time when Mattis resigned, by the way. So we don't know, again, outside of his letter, what the exact reasons for his resignation were. Um, But if there was an acute cause, um, in my mind, it seems like the SMA talks with South Korea may have been up there. His letter did emphasize how allies should be treated. Uh, But of course, you know, NATO is another issue that's been just as prominent. Um, Mm -hmm. So where we are right now is that uh, there was just another round of consultations in January uh, where the United States, according to Reuters, determined that South Korea should pay about 1.5 times what it was paying before, uh, which is a huge increase. I mean, historically, so the SMA arrangement was put into place in 1991 under George H.W. Bush when the alliance underwent changes um, after South Korea had democratized and uh, it determined a a burden-sharing mechanism. And since 1991, every sort of SMA agreement has been, it's been a difficult negotiation. The South Koreans haven't allowed themselves to be, you know, walked all over by the United States, but they have sort of ponied up the cash to show that they are an equal partner in this alliance. Um, And historically, what that's meant is that they've covered the cost of U.S. forces uh, fairly equitably. And for every revision, they've effectively covered inflation and then a premium determining um, 
you know, based on how many additional troops or additional assets the U.S. is basing on the peninsula. Um, so that's been the basic approach. But now this kind of, you know, Trump comes into office and he effectively treats alliances as protection rackets. And he's asking, you know, his negotiators are asking the South Koreans to now pay 1.5 times. That's just not going to happen. Um, I mean, the domestic political context here matters quite a bit, too, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, President Moon Jae-in is a progressive leader elected by a base that, while not anti-American, I mean, a significant portion of the South Korean progressive base is a lot more skeptical about the U.S. presence on the peninsula than, let's say, a conservative administration. So you had Park Geun-hye, his predecessor, who also concluded a special measures agreement and, and most significantly oversaw the completion of the Pyeongtaek project, which was the largest, you know, Camp Humphreys, the largest U.S. military facility anywhere in the world, which the South Koreans paid billions for. So there's no way that, you know, Moon is going to be able to politically survive agreeing to something like this, uh, you know, no matter how much of a pro-American president he is. And he is a pro-American president. You know, I mean, he gets kind of derided as a, you know, anti-American leftist sometimes, but that's just not true about Moon Jae-in. I mean, he does support the alliance. It's just that this puts South Korea in a politically a very difficult position. And it frays at the alliance. And of course, as I said at the beginning, this is all coming at this time when we're about to head into the second summit encounter with Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. And North Korea couldn't be happier to see this happen. I mean, you know, sometimes it does get overdone, the whole, you know, this is exactly what Kim Jong-un <laughs> wants angle. But, I mean, this is exactly what Kim Jong-un wants. The Allies are in a, you know, very vulnerable position right now as North Korea is looking for concessions. And the thing that I've always worried about, and I've said on previous podcasts when it comes to diplomacy with North Korea, is that one of the big ways that Trump is different from every previous U.S. president is his fundamental thinking about alliances makes what used to be a concession not a concession, right? I mean, reducing the U.S. presence in South Korea is something that Trump has talked about doing. It's something that he wants to do. Mm -hmm. So giving that to North Korea, to him, does not appear to be a costly signal. It's it's saving the United States money, effectively. So that makes it more likely that he's going to do that. So the big concern I have right now, as we head into February, and let's keep in mind that we now know that the Trump-Kim summit for 2019 is scheduled for the end of February at some point. Um, you know, the risk is that we don't get a special measures agreement between the two sides. And that makes it so much easier for Trump to offer a concession to North Korea on this uh, on the alliance issue. Mm -hmm. And and how does this play into you know, sort of the, the broader issue of alliance management? We've talked about this before on the podcast, but the fact is, I mean, we, we're talking about here. Uh, the negotiation of burden sharing, but this comes amid, you know, broader uncertainties that we've seen in the alliance too, right? Whether it's on uh, the free trade agreement, for example, um, we've seen issues with respect to North Korea, as you pointed out, um, and and there is this kind of notion, I mean, under the Obama administration, that you know the the United States and South Korea ought to work together more uh, regionally and globally in addition to this bilateral agreement that they have including on you know threats and challenges you know least of all uh, the issue of China which is given greater prominence in the Trump administration how does this complicate the broader alliance management uh, issues for both sides and how do you see this eventually playing out i mean could we really see you know an alliance breakdown here or, or do you suspect that this is you know sort of Trump's opening position and, and that we'll eventually see some kind of resolution. It's it's really hard to say. I mean, you know, um, I, I kind of view the alliance management issue with South Korea with a heavy kind of view of the domestic political context there. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that Moon Jae-in's uh, rapprochement with North Korea has massive support, um, both among obviously his base, but also among people who necessarily weren't, you know, Moon Jae-in fans before the election in, in 2017, let's say. 
Uh, so, so what that means is that with with all of these alliance issues, um, look, I mean, Trump's popularity in South Korea was high after the summit last year in Singapore. He was seen as sort of contributing to a broader uh, sense of peace on the peninsula. Um, but if these SMA talks drag on, I think it's going to be more likely that we will see longer term um, damage to the pro-American cause in South Korea. The conservatives obviously continue to be very pro-American. Um, and, you know, if you go to Seoul, you'll see kind of protests everywhere calling for an end to talks with Kim Jong-un and more U.S. troops and great support for the alliance. Um, but, you know, longer term, I think this could cause real problems. I mean, one of the one of the practical ways in which the lack of an SMA agreement could very soon come to actually hurt ordinary South Koreans is that um, South Korean civilians, uh, thousands of whom work with U.S. forces Korea, um, will be furloughed. I mean, it's just like the U.S. Right. government uh, shutdown at home here. Um, you know, they will stop getting paid because the two sides can't come to an agreement because Trump is trying to shake down South Korea. And that could, you know, e very easily be spun into a narrative that the United States is not treating South Korea as the kind of ally that it should be. Um, so, you know, longer term, I worry that it, it's going to strain the alliance. I don't necessarily think that it's going to be the end of the alliance. Um, Trump, I mean, he does see South Korea as a wealthy country. And when it comes to alliances, I think he has much more misgivings about the U.S. paying for the defense of wealthy countries. So I think that's another factor there. Um, but I think the two sides are effectively going to have to hammer this out at the leader's level. Um, and that's maybe an advantage because Trump does tend to, you know, soften a little bit when he's face to face with leaders. He tends to like them a lot better. We've seen this with Xi Jinping, certainly. At least we've seen this with authoritarian leaders. I don't know if it'll be true for Moon Jae-in, who mm. Trump perhaps doesn't view in the same in the same lenses. But um, but yeah, I mean, it is a it is a big source of concern for me right now. No, absolutely. I, and I think your, your point about uh, domestic politics uh, is really significant, right? Because I think Trump approaches a lot of this, these issues from uh, a sort of instinct that the views that he holds about alliances, free trade, um, you know, appeal to his base, right? And that if he attaches himself to these key priorities and he keeps pushing on them, um, he will still have support from a particular base that he has in the United States. But you know, that also should be accompanied with a recognition that other leaders that he's dealing with in these uh, allies also have the domestic politics of, of their own, right? And if they are not given adequate space and, and face to maneuver, uh, it's very difficult for them to be able to justify the the sort of continued alliance management and, and alliance burden that they, they have uh, and will continue to shoulder to their own domestic populations, right? So that recognition of reciprocity, I, I think, probably needs to happen to a greater degree than it has already if, if these issues are to be managed properly. Yeah, I mean, you know, before we close, I mean, one other thing I'll say is that we are heading into um, a presidential election here in the United States. And I think many allies um, who've been understandably left disconcerted by the Trump administration are going to be looking for the positions taken on by a lot of Trump's opponents on the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, because I think... You know, at least when I when I go around Asia and I talk to these people, I mean, there is a hope that in 2020 there will be a change of government in the United States and that um, mm -hmm. whatever administration succeeds, the Trump administration is going to, first of all, embark on an apology tour and second of all, really do what they can to reaffirm U.S. commitments to these allies. Uh, so I think that might be um, an important factor. But obviously, you know, I mean, there are still two years before Trump leaves office potentially, right? I mean, assuming that the investigations and things like that don't actually turn up anything and he's not impeached necessarily in the meantime. Uh, so allies can't necessarily count on that. I mean, a lot can happen in two years. There are realistic requirements. For example, the U.S. and South Korea can't go two years without a special measures agreement. Um, there's just no way. And effectively, um, if, you know, as we think, Trump and Kim 
come to the summit and agree that U.S.-South Korea exercises are going to be called off again, uh, you start to have real questions about readiness. You start to have real questions about, you know, what the purpose of the alliance is if this process with North Korea does continue. So there are, you know, some serious questions here that we're getting into uh, about uh, halfway into Trump's first term. Um, so, yeah, you know, first term, there's also the possibility that he could have a second term. So, um, I, you know, these, yeah, these alliance management problems, I think, are just going to get worse from here. Yeah, and I think that your point about domestic politics in the United States is, is pretty apt because as we get to the 2020 elections, there's also doubts and, and uncertainties about what the Democratic positions will be, right? Like, as you noted, I mean, there are some Democrats who adopt more traditional notions about alliance management, but there are also uh, those of a certain persuasion who might actually share some views with Trump in terms of, you know, particularly if economic conditions worsen in the United States, um, the fact that he has a point um, about what the United States needs to do in alliances and other countries taking on uh, a greater sense of burden sharing, right? It's important to note, I mean, the tendencies that we're seeing under Trump are definitely more pronounced and unique, but under the Obama administration, we saw similar notions, right, of, right. of burden sharing. They were much better managed, I think, um, and well thought out. Um, but this notion of burden sharing is, is a historic one, and I think that's going to be a difficult challenge for the United States to manage. Yeah, no, I think one of the things the Obama people probably regret now is coming up with the... Uh you know, the 2% rule for NATO, that's really, it was never <laughs> yeah. meant to be a rule per se, but, uh, you know, Absolutely. now it's effectively turned into a benchmark for Trump. Um, mm -hmm. But anyways, Prashant, uh, I'm sure this is something we'll come back to. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks for joining me today. Good to be with you. Absolutely. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, but you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please do that. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play, please do that as well. That really helps get the word out about the show. In the meantime, if there's anything you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast, just shoot us a note. Uh, some of the previous episodes have actually been based on um, the feedback we've, we've received from our listeners, so we do take that seriously. Um, so thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.